Matthew 12, 22 to 32. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now, when the Pharisees heard, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house casts out Satan, divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do you, your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. God, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. I thank you for what you're going to do in this time. And I pray, Lord, that you would do something beautiful, something rich right now. Lord, for every person here as we start this beautiful, fresh, we see this beautiful, fresh work, God, I pray that something really amazing would take place. God, that you would today richly speak to us, magnificently, powerfully, in such a way that we go, wow, that was so for me. And I thank you that you are today the same as you were 2,000 years ago. As you will be for eternity. The same yesterday, today, and forever. And I praise you, Lord, <clears throat> that in this time you have ordained, you seek to minister to our needs. Not so that we could just say that we had a good experience, but that so that today we could say, what an awesome God, and that our relationship with you would flourish. So, Lord, you know exactly what you want to say today. And I pray that you would perfectly speak, fluent us, to each of our hearts and minds and ears today. And we commit our time to you now. We thank you for this relatively warm building on a very relatively cold day that doesn't feel like spring at all. And we just say, Lord, have your way. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. Let the Word always, I would say, don't take my word for it. Take the Word for it. One of the problems we face when we go and we seek to better ourselves is we forget about the parts that make us up. 
And we can invest in one part and neglect another. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, when God sums up His commandments, He says, if I can just make it really easy for you, for which Jesus will quote as the most important of all commandments, it is called the Shemach, which is the Hebrew word for to hear, but to listen with the purpose of acting upon. He tells us in Deuteronomy 6.5, we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And the mindset of God, if you were to speak to, let me say this way, if you're going to speak to a traditional Jewish person and ask them, do they believe in any trinity? They would have to say yes. They actually believe in a trinity of social strata, by the way. That's another story of high priest, priest, and commoner. But they also speak about a person being made up of three parts. Your emotions, that would be your heart, your appetites, for which they say is beyond human or beyond the natural, your soul, and your physical aspect, your strength. Now, by the time that the nation develops into a Greek mindset, a fourth is added. And it's always been confusing to me. So when the question is asked of Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he says in Mark 12, 30, to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. We start asking, so what part is actually the soul? But there's the problem. Running it from a philosophical perspective, we start splitting hairs on things until we don't really fully understand that man is made up of parts. You are, as a human being, made up of a physical part. Well, that should be the simplest part. You bump your, stub your toe, you cut your skin. It hurts. Your body tells you. You are a physical being. But might I say... You are not a physical being as much as you are a soul in a physical being. It's your tent. You are an emotional being. Now, some of you display it more than others. Some of you can be a hurricane of emotions. But each of you have emotions. You are an emotional being. You are a physical being. You are a spiritual being. As a spiritual being, you were created to something beyond the decay. Physically, you decay. Emotionally, you even decay to some degree. The passions of youth often become embers in our age. But spiritually... They are never to decrease because they are no, in no way tethered to the degradations of this earth. And this thing, this spiritual aspect of us, well, tells us, by the way, there are appetites that God has placed within us as spiritual beings. Appetites that cannot be quantified by math. Certain parts of us that are drawn to things we don't understand. 
When they ask, are you a mountains person, are you a city person, are you a beach person, what draws one person to another? Then they could play games about, well, your associations and so forth, but there's something inside. What makes one person look and go, boy, is she beautiful, while their best friend next to them looks and goes, well, that one's not for me. What, what makes that happen? There are appetites inside of us that God placed for companionship, for purpose. And these are appetites God has given us that transcend humankind because strange as it is we could be just as lonely in our 60s as we could be in our 20s it seems to not decrease even with all of the if you will all of the baggage that we could gather in between our teen years and all of those i love you forever but it never works kind of thing you know even with all of those things that you know that it touches a nerve when you think about it it's still inside of us burns the same desire because it transcends because the this spiritual appetite god has given will can't be met by man but it has to be met by him in our text god shows us a bit of the pulls off a little bit of the spiritual realm for us and my hope today is to develop that even more so we get a clear understanding from a biblical perspective This spiritual being. Now, please understand, if you want to separate the mind from the spiritual world, you might want to take a careful look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 6. When he talks about the weapons of our warfare not being carnal, but mighty in God. You cannot fight a spiritual war with physical weapons. Now, wouldn't it be great if every religion thought so? But you can only fight a spiritual battle with spiritual weapons. But in 2 Corinthians 10.4, which is clearly the spiritual battle, he tells us there to take down strongholds, to destroy every high and lofty ideal against the knowledge of God, and then to take every thought captive. Interesting, it doesn't say to take every lust captive. He doesn't say to take every appetite captive, but to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What we can easily forget is when we talk about the spiritual realm, the battlefield is our mind. When we tend to think of it just simply in the heavenly places where there's sort of like nice angels and bad angels duking it out and we don't really kind of, we're kind of unaware of it. And some of that became because we read a lot of books that kind of said those things. But spiritually, you need to recognize that God and I need to recognize that there is a battle in your thought life that is a spiritual battle because the battle ultimately is over those appetites. And that's the spiritual basis. Here in our text, Jesus has sent out his 12 apostles. As he sent them out, he sent them into cities with a simple message to those that make claim already to God that, he, that Jesus is coming, and then he starts showing up in their towns as they promised. While that is happening, I remind you, there weren't just 12 disciples. Jesus had a myriad of students by this point, thousands of students. And as he had them, they're still watching and he's still teaching. Twelve have been sent off. After 12, there will be 70 sent off. The class will grow. Interesting, when they return in Luke ten seventeen, their response is that they are buzzing. But they're not buzzing about some of the things that, well, they're certainly not buzzing about the thing Jesus would be 
more than anything else. Because they say, and they're, and they're buzzing, they look at Jesus and go, even demons are subject to us in your name. And you would think Jesus is like, yeah, isn't it cool, guys, watching demons flee? Isn't it cool? And you're like, you get in after a while, you get your stance, and you get your point, and you get your, in the name! You know, you get your, you get your thing going on. You put on your thing. Isn't it cool? I and mean, Jesus, actually, it's like the fanfare gets run over by a truck, and Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from this guy. Now, that's a very strange response to them going, they're jonesing over their spiritual power. He's like, see, understand, the reason he fell was pride. I will. I will sit on the congregation of the north. I will be like the Most High. Sound familiar? It's the same lie he tried on Eve. Satan was consumed with himself. And in being consumed with himself, he was cast down. And Jesus is looking at his disciples, his apostles, and he looks at them and he goes, I've seen this scene before, and it wasn't pretty. Glory not that demons are subject to you, but glory rather in this, that your names are written in heaven. The one thing that should buzz you more than anything should be your salvation. But what if you've been saved for 30 years? That should be 30 years of buzzing. It doesn't grow old because we keep discovering how nasty we are. And the more I discover how nasty I am, the more I I see the depth of his love. Interesting, the issue will be demons being subject to him. Here in our text, in verse 22, they bring to him one who is demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him. So that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. Now, obviously, someone's bringing the man to him. He can't see. Obviously, He can't confess. And there are those that teach the only way something can happen is if you confess it first. Certainly that can't be the case for this man. He was unable to speak. But it does say he was demon-possessed. Nowhere in Scripture does it teach how a person becomes possessed. Aren't you thankful? Because you know people would be using it. But at least 72 times in Scripture demons are mentioned. Four of them, and only four, are in the Old Testament. What's interesting is that all four cases, the same situation is at hand. And that is that people sacrifice to them. Leviticus 17.7, Deuteronomy 32.17, Second Chronicles 11.15, Psalm 106, verse 37. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. Every time in Scripture, in the Old Testament, you see demons. You see them, at least in this sense here, but mentioned by name. We'll see lying spirits and other things we can easily say. But when he mentions them as this, they're mentioned as the object of someone else's worship. The object of someone else's sacrifice. 
Now, I, won't want to, I don't want to give the enemy too much credit, but he certainly gets it often a lot when we start talking about the spiritual world. But I do want to point out three very simple things as we kind of get into our text. The easiest places to discover the mindset and fall of Satan is in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. You can remember, it's easy to remember, one's double the other. But in Isaiah 14, 14, it tells us, the mindset of the enemy when he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. His mindset is self-consumed. It is all about him. His mission, Jesus made clear in John 10.10, was to steal. Now understand, steal means to steal away. We're aware of that. We don't always think that through. But the idea is to remove from its place to a place of isolation with him. To steal, to kill, and to destroy. His mindset, self-consumed. His mission, to steal you away, to kill you and destroy you. His method, John 8, 44. Jesus says, when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. In the New International Version, it says, when he speaks a lie, he speaks his native language. So it's like, what's your first language? Lying. So understand this. Satan is consumed with himself. That's his mindset. His mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. And his method is to lie. Now, he can lie by accusing. We read that he's the accuser of the brethren. As a matter of fact, that's what his name means. Slanderer. He can lie about sin being less than it is before you do it and then unforgivable on the other side. But Jesus makes clear there's one thing here, and we'll get there in a moment. But there's a couple other things you need to be very aware of, and it really does help us understand this. One thing, and it is very imperative to recognize, in Ezekiel 28, verse 15, is that Satan is created. He is not eternal the way we understand eternal. He is an eternal past. He is not God's brother. He was a created being. Just like you, just like me, he's created. And because he's created, he has limits. When the sons of God present themselves to God in Job chapter 1, and God speaks to Satan, Satan says he was going to and fro on the earth, walking back and forth on it. Satan cannot be everywhere at one time. Stop giving him that kind of credit. It is amazing how big we make him and how little we make God. As a matter of fact, though he may appear tough, and certainly when David says you've made him a little lower than the angels, I get it. But in Revelation chapter 20, when God wants him locked up for a thousand years, we read an unnamed angel. I'm sure he has a name, he just doesn't get it here. We don't read the Hulk angel. We don't read the buff angel. We read just an angel at God's command, grabs Satan and throws him in the bottomless pit. I get the idea here that God is in control. How about you? When Jesus comes to earth here in our text, What's clear is that the demonic world has now made a field day out of the people around them. 
It is never because the world is evil. It's because the church has become impotent. It's the one thing that drives away anything that way. Now understand this. Demons can never command God. In Scripture, they only beg. They don't even ask. They beg. That's what we read in Matthew 8 with the guy that was possessed by a legion of them. The demons begged him. When Jesus sent out his disciples in Matthew 10.8, we read, by the way, in all of that, cast out the demons, because freely you receive, freely you give. Mary Magdalene, who had followed him, had had seven cast from him. He tells us in the last days in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, that the Spirit expressively says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. I remind you, if they serve their master, well then clearly their mission is to steal, kill, and destroy. Their mindset is him first, and their method is lying. And if we recognize that, we recognize this poor man now has been kept under that bondage. Now, just because a person's blind doesn't mean he's demon possessed. That's clear in Scripture. Or mute. There's no physical infirmity that seems exclusive to demon possession. The problem is, demon possession, that doesn't make it any less real. The problem is, is if we don't get our understanding from Scripture, we develop our own tactics. So I'm going to read to you for a moment from this, and then we'll get into our text about how... Jesus looks at these guys and says, this is the dumbest argument you've ever thrown at me. Both the Catholic Church and the Muslim religion have both set up standards for what it means for a person to be possessed. Now, for those of you who are familiar with Scripture, the question is exactly how much of this applies to Scripture. And the sacred congregation for divine worship and the discipline of Sacraments Revised Rituals, published on the 26th of January, the year 2000. These requirements, according to the Catholic Church, must be met. At least five of these requirements must be met for a person to be demon-possessed. Now, there's only six. First one, levitation. How many times have you seen that in Scripture? Yeah, none. How many times have you seen the exorcist? Well, that's another story. Second, the uncaused movement of objects. See that in Scripture anywhere? Third one, strength that surpasses one's condition. Okay, well, maybe in that case with the seven sons of Siva, if you're familiar with that from the book of Acts, one guy possessed, jumps, you know, uh, seven priest kids, and they run out naked and bleeding. Yeah, that may be appropriate. Maybe when they couldn't, the guy that was possessed by the legion was chained up and they couldn't hold him with chains. Okay, I'll give you that. Knowledge of archaic languages. Could you imagine? Oh, my goodness, that guy speak, speaking Incan or Latin or whatever the case is. Imagine that. Knowledge of the exorcist's life. And a vehement aversion to God, the mother uh, Mary, of course, in that case, saints, the cross, sacred images, or, sacri- or sacrilegious actions. Now, any demon in the right mind, if there is such a thing, would go, well, this is an easy one. That guy could be possessed for his entire life, and no one Catholic's going to go after him. But here's the Muslim one, for what it's well. 
Sakhal Sheikh, January 4th, 2011, writes these standards now. A feeling of heaviness on your shoulders or your head, or a headache when standing up for Salah. That's your prayers. So imagine you stand up too fast, your head starts to spin. Could be a demon. Feeling a movement of pain, burning, pins and needles, fear or anxiety when you listen to the Quran on headphones really loudly. Huh. Dislike of reading the Quran or anything opposite of tranquility. The anxiety or fear of going to masjid, that's the Muslim church, if you will. Getting headaches during lectures. Now, don't get any ideas here. The dislike of adzan. Adzan is that Muslim call to prayer. You know that thing that happens at five in the morning? It's like... Now, anyways, I won't go there. You get it. Here's one of my favorites. Insomnia or dreaming of being chased by a black dog, a lion, or a tall, bald man. Just, Just letting you know, I didn't write this. Hearing voices, suicidal thoughts, preferring to be alone, uh oh, preferring not to have showers or keep clean, irrational anger, obscene thoughts during prayer, and an urge to push people or babies downstairs. Now, I might be a little concerned about that last one. Please hear me in this. In all of these things, we've come up with these, did you develop these things, but where in the world do they come from? Scripturally, do we, how do they even know this guy is possessed? It isn't like they go, hmm, is he levitating? Do you speak in archaic languages? There aren't that many that were archaic 2,000 years ago, if you think about it. Latin was hot still. It wasn't a dead language yet. You know, hold on, let's get out a relic. What's a relic back in those days? I mean, the relics were being made in those days. Oh, I think I've got a piece of wood from the ark. I mean, imagine what you could do with that. How do you feel about stairs and babies? I mean, you know. And the only reason I say that is, is that we can get so caught up into all of this stuff, it so exaggerates things that the enemy gets this, like he's this big scary monster, and then God's kind of this wimpy thing that maybe, hopefully by the last round, he'll drop him. That is so not scriptural. Who is your God? My God spoke stuff. And it happened. He flung the universe into existence with a handful of words. And every knee is going to bow before my Jesus. Every knee. And there's no battle. Even the Antichrist, who's possessed by Satan, by all the powers of hell, by all the powers of hell, when he shows up and people go, who's able to make war with him? It reads that Jesus will knock him down with his breath, and destroy him by the splendors of his coming. I mean, this guy's reaping, you know, all kinds of havoc all over the world. And Jesus goes, here I come to save the day. And then, boom, and the whole thing's over. There's no battle there. Whose God God is yours? Scripturally, this guy was brought to Jesus. And please, I remind you, when the man was possessed even by the legion, or at least calls it legion, I remind you that when that man saw Jesus... He ran and worshipped him. All the powers of hell cannot keep you from running to the feet of Jesus. You make that choice. They can lie to you, and in their lies you could be kept. You can choose those lies, but they cannot stop you. Because God is not going to let them. If you want to come to him, you can come to him. And I remind you, Jesus said in the last chapter, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you what? 
Rest. That's what God's been wanting to do. But what was the thing required for them to, for us to get that rest? What do we have to do? How difficult is that? What did this guy have to do to get healed? He had to come. Now, in his case, being blind and mute, it was a little harder, so we had friends bring him. Well, I love the fact that in the end of it all, he still came. Man, what would happen if we could get people to come? Like, come to Jesus. I just know if I could get you to Jesus, he could fix you. But you don't understand the depth of my problem. Yeah, but I'm not your doctor either. He's the good physician. All I need to know is this. If I, how do I get you to Jesus? If I can get you to Jesus, he can fix you. I'm sure of that. So Jesus heals this guy. And by the way, that all happens in a verse. It isn't like there was a, there we had to wave holy water and bring in these sacraments and pray to Mary. And then he had to wave water at someone. And, and was, there was none of that. He didn't have to say, put on these headphones and listen to these verses really loudly. He didn't say, all right, you need to kneel like this. Or you need to stand like this. Jesus, this isn't, there's no fanfare in this. The guy comes and Jesus goes, you're well. And that's it. And we don't even read how. And the multitude were amazed. I love the fact that Jesus just makes this look easy. There was no battle here. There was no Jesus like, okay, now what's the sixth thing I need to do? And we don't even read whether he spoke or he touched or he just blinked or he smiled or what. But one thing's for sure, the method was so less important than this. His power was enough, was abundant. So the multitudes look and they say, could this be the son of David? Now, back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David is in a situation. Let me explain this at least a little bit. David is in a situation where he is, he's now been king over the entire uh, kingdom. He had gotten the southern tribes first and then got the rest of them afterwards uh, after serving seven and a half years. And then in doing so, David kind of looks around and he kind of has one of those DTL moments, you know, define the life. He's kind of looking around now. He's like, what's the deal? And he looks and he goes, you know, look at the big, beautiful house I have. Look how everything's comfortable and nice. And there's God camping in my front yard. This isn't right. So David calls in a guy that we see first time in Scripture. His name is the gift of God. His name is Nathaniel or Nathan. And he goes, you know, Nate, I was thinking, I was thinking God shouldn't be camping in my front yard. Let's make him a really cool house. And Nathan goes, hey, buddy, sounds like a great idea. Loose paraphrase. Don't just believe me. And as Nathan is walking out, God says, whoa, 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 Nate, I know it sounds sweet, but it ain't going to work. And, and this is why. Because, see, David's a man of blood, and I'm not going to build my kingdom by making other men shed their blood. God's like, that's my job. That's not theirs. So you go back and tell them, hey, sorry, you can't do it, but I will actually build you a house instead with an enduring everlasting kingdom, from your loins will come the Messiah. From your loins will become the one. And that's 2 Samuel chapter 7, by the way. And please hear this, because you see the heart of David. Now, please understand, David didn't want to just build a house for God because he thought it would be cool to have him as a neighbor. David wanted to build a house for God because, to be honest, he wanted to move in and live there himself. David said, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that I will seek after that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Well, when he was saying that, God didn't have a house. He had a tent. So listen to David's heart in this. Though he can't build the house, do you know what he says? In the simplest sense, if I can't do it, I'll help make it easier on the one who can. Do you realize that's why we're still here serving you guys? 
because there are others who couldn't come here from America. But they love to see this work happen. And they're saying in their mindset, even if I can't do it, I can help make it easier on the one who does. Well, that's what David does. He gathers all the materials. And imagine that. Imagine that, Mark. You've got a building with building project, and they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, we have all the materials all set aside. Imagine, you know, it's like you've got, like, Castle Depot, you know, B&Q happening. Everything's kind of nice. And they're like, yeah, the only thing's left now. I have the blueprints, but I can't build this. Here you go, boy. Go to it. How are you with the kingdom of God? You're like, well, I, I don't think I can really do that. Well, can you make it easier on someone who is? Because every one of us should be about God's kingdom. Every one of us. And what we're going to see here in a moment, this, when we get to the conclusion on this, is you're really only going to be on one side or the other. There's no neutral ground on this. And it really is quite alarming, to be honest. Are you in a place where somehow you are investing in the kingdom of God? How are you investing in the kingdom of God? Because God has never called any Christian to be latent and uninvolved. And if you can't be about building it, then you should be about helping it. However that works. Because what you find is when you do what God calls you to, it just comes together now. So the multitude say, so this son of David was the one that was promised. Psalm 89, 29, Psalm 132, 11 and 12, Isaiah 9, 7. We get the idea that this Messiah has to come from the loins of David. He is, by the way, the, both the root and the branch of Jesse. The root because he's everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting. It is the term two blind men will use in Matthew 9 and in Matthew 20. Have mercy on me, son of David. It is what the Canaanite woman says in Matthew 15:22. It is what the multitudes call him on Palm Sunday as Jesus descends in Matthew 21:9, son of David. They know that means the Messiah. So these people, when they're saying that, they're like, notice it's not a son of David. Could it be the son of David? Well, could this be the Messiah? Now, the Pharisees are getting a little freaked out by this. You can imagine that. Because they're seeing their competition is now being heralded to be the Messiah. That's a little rough. So the Pharisees then respond, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Baalzebub, the ruler of demons. Baal means master or lord. Zebub means flies. Zebul, by the way, means poop. So, the lord of the flies. Of course, is another nickname, if you will, for Satan. Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Do you guys realize how stupid you sound? Satan's going to cast Satan out of someone? Satan looks, and he's looking at his kingdom, and he looks, and he says, Oh, yeah, look, at you're doing such a great job. I think I should fire you. Really? But what Jesus does in this, and please hear me, is that Jesus actually doesn't just call them stupid. He lays out a gnomic standard. Gnomic means it's beyond culture. It's beyond time. It's a universal standard. And here's the standard. Division destroys. That's the, that's the standard. And Jesus knows it. Don't miss this, beloved, because we see this. Remember, it's a self-consumed enemy whose mission is to steal, kill, and destroy, and his tool or his methodology is lies, well, how does it work? How does he, what does he do with those lies? What does he do? Now, 
I don't know how many of you have seen this, and I've been kind of praying about what would be the right metaphor, but for whatever reason, I really liked The Incredibles. For some of you, really, I don't know. I liked how it exaggerated the roles of a family, how the father's supposed to be strong and the mother's supposed to be flexible and one girl always feels invisible. And then there's the baby, and he's just crazy in all different ways. And then there's the boy, and you got to, you know, it's like you know, a taser's not going to stop him. You know, I, I love all of that. But there was one thing that really kind of hit me as I was praying through this scripture. And that was, I, I don't know how many of you have seen it, and if I lose you in this, please forgive me. I won't be long. But, but this sort of created sort of robotic thing is coming after him. And it's made out of, it seems invincible. And it seems so invincible that how are they going to penetrate this thing? Even this strong guy can't seem to get in the way you'd hoped that he could. Well, ultimately what you realize is it's so durable, it's so strong, it's so impenetrable, it's so impervious. The only thing that's strong enough to really damage it is itself. So they take the claw thing and then winds up making through it. I hope you remember that. Listen, Jesus built the body of Christ and it is durable and it is strong and it is enduring. And the enemy knows the only thing strong enough to hurt the body of Christ is itself. That's the point. So when the enemy comes to steal, kill and destroy, well, how does he do it? Well, simple, trying to use his lies to cause division. And if you can use a lie to cause division, the body is hurting the body. And that's exactly the best of all worlds for him and the worst of all worlds for us. And what Jesus is teaching us here is quite simple. Look at no kingdom stands when it's divided. Your body doesn't exist for long if it's divided. You start ripping David's arms and legs off, he's not going to last very long. And when the body is against the body, it certainly can't last long. And please hear me in this. The enemy loves this. The crazy thing is how effective this is. And what's even worse to me is how susceptible the body is to this tactic. How quickly we grab a hold of gossip. How quickly we would rather talk about somebody than talk to them to nail something down and get it cleared up. Instead, we would rather spread it like gangrene. And what happens is the body starts punching holes in itself. Do you hear about, well, I can't believe, I heard he said, well, the text was like this and I'm sure the tone was this. And you get all of this crazy stuff. I get it. I see why in Romans 16, 17, Paul says, note those who cause divisions and avoid them. Titus 3.10, he says to the to young pastor of Titus, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition or warning. Because, see, division not only destroys, it kills. James 2.26 tells us, by the way, the body without the spirit, it's dead. Those two things have to be united. Faith without works, it's dead. You start dividing them, that's another story. We cannot, nor can I, stand divided. It starts with you individually. It starts with me individually. Please hear me in this. Because what happens is I let my appetites divide me. So what will happen is I know where I belong with the Lord. I know what's supposed to happen there. And I look at that and I think, I want to be in the center of your will. I want to be exactly where you want me. But then this thing comes up and I'm like, and then the question starts entertaining in my head where the battle's being fought now to be taken captive to the, to the obedience of Christ. Well, okay, I'm not, okay, what if I say mostly no to that? Can I like let a little of that in? 
and still do this and be the center of your will. I mean, it's not like God's bullseye is like this. Maybe God's bullseye is a little wider, and maybe I'm not really dead center, but I'm kind of center-ish. And I wonder why I'm not thriving. And then I'm divided. And you know what the division will be over? Ultimately, the mindset that Satan himself carries, and that's me first. It's all about me. And the moment I make it about me, everything else goes out the window. Then I'm entitled to be a jerk. Then I'm entitled to pursue whatever ambitions and things in my own heart. And that's where this comes, beloved. So please hear me. Jesus looks and he goes, you need to understand nothing survives division without my help. So before we even take it to that next step, let me ask you, what about you individually? Are you divided? Is there that part of you that craves the Lord and you know it? But there's another part of you that's living an entirely second life. And then you wonder why neither flourishes. Are we all in? Or are we divided? And then we, how do we expect to survive that duplicative life? And then we go from that to a family unit. And we realize we're all in it for ourselves and we get self-consumed or whatever. How does that not cause division? And when that causes division, how does the family survive? And a church is made up of families. What happens then when we all come in with our own mindsets and weirdnesses and all these things? But see, the one thing we have in common is not our past. It isn't our race. It isn't our social strata. It isn't our nationality. What we have in common is our future. What we have in common is the one who sent his son to die on the cross, to be tortured to death, to let his blood cover all my sins and yours is the same. And the same blood washes from from all sins and we can stand perfect and pure before him. How could we possibly take up an offense or a weird thing when Jesus has washed us from such filth? And then we're turning around to someone else, grabbing him by the throat for the measly whatever and saying, pay me what you owe me. Please hear me in this. Jesus goes from this to our second standard, and it's important to recognize it. Jesus will say in verse 27 and 28, Hey, look at if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Wait a minute. They were doing the same? Sure. In Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Hey, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I've never knew you? What, have people prophesied? Cast out demons in his name? And Jesus will say, do I, do I know you? So apparently that can't be proof of salvation, can it? Because these people will not inherit the kingdom of God or not enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet they're doing these crazy miracles. John will say in Mark 9.38, John the disciple, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he's not with us. Jesus is like, what? What? Really? And of course, the seven sons of Sceva, who, by the way, do not appear to be believers because they say we cast you out or we demand you or command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. What do all of these things have in common? 
these casting out of demons by people who don't seem to follow Jesus, they still do it in his name. Didn't we cast out demons in your name? We saw one we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. We adjure you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. The name of the Lord will always be a strong tower, and the righteous will always be able to run to it and be safe. That's Proverbs 18.10. We are promised in Joel 2.32, reiterated in Romans 10.13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But sooner or later, the enemy starts calling the bluff, like he did with the seven sons of Siva. There was exorcisms taking place that were not part of Jesus' camp. But Jesus will warn us next week how dangerous that can be. Verse 29 says this, How can you enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Interesting, by the way, the word strong here is not what I expected when I was reading it in the Greek. I mean, my first word, the, the, my first assumption would be the word sterizo. Sterizo, like steroid, means strong. It's the word that basically means strong. Now, such a word is like what I think of somebody sterizo, I think of someone like on steroids. There's somebody big and buff. And that's the way the enemy is portrayed often because we look at it that way. But that's not the word we're actually looking at here, interestingly enough. The word is the word escuras. Like escus. It actually means violent. Forceful. You don't have to be big to be forceful. I've seen little guys get all kinds of forceful. They just get all crazy and crawl up in your grill. They're the kind of guy that quickly jumps to, I mean, really easily angered, super hot tempered. That's the idea of this guy here. He says, look at. You can't just go in and take a guy's goods. In a case like this, it appears to be he's holding them hostage. Unless you can actually take down the guy first. Now, from this text, people get this idea of binding the strong man. They're binding services. You've probably seen those. Well, it's like, all right, we're going to come in and what we're going to do is we're going to spend an hour focusing on the enemy and binding him. Well, that's kind of a crazy idea. I get what you're trying to do here. But it tells us in the book of Hebrews, inasmuch as the children were of flesh and blood, he likewise shared in the same that he through his death might destroy him who had the power of death. Jesus destroyed Satan's power, literally rendered impotent. He ripped out any power that guy could have had. So though Satan might run around like a roaring lion, his teeth have been ripped out. The moment you said yes to Jesus. The question is, what is it that is his goods? In the the comparative text in Luke 11, by the way, it says this in verse 21. And when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are at peace. But when a stronger then comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes all of his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoils. They're familiar with that scene. Do you realize what the spoil was? That Jesus went in when he took down the strong man? What the spoil was that he went and took? It was you. It was me. That's the point of it. And this man that was brought to Jesus now couldn't see and couldn't speak. 
But Jesus had set him free and he said, you need to understand something. Why would Satan be casting out Satan? Here's the beauty in all of this. I'm going to come. What you're seeing here is Satan rendered impotent. There's nothing he can do to stop this. There's the point. We read that the world lies under the sway of the wicked one, not under his control, but under his sway, which that means is his influence. People are walking under the influence of the liar who has come to steal, kill and destroy because he's so full of himself. The greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The moment I said yes to Jesus, I was set free. I understand why ransom must need be paid then. Listen. God wants to make clear that Satan has been destroyed, rendered incompetent and impotent to you. And you need to recognize, we need to stop blaming Satan for our stupid choices. He can still make bad, he can still make bad offers, but we have the ability to say no. Look for yourself in 1 John 5 when it says, Whoever has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Figure that one out. In Ephesians 1, and while we're almost done, friends, in Ephesians 1, we read, When Jesus died on the cross for us, raised him from the dead, we read that the Father seated him, this is verse 20, the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power, might and dominion in every name that is named. Not only in this age, but this age that is to come. And he put all things, all things, all things under his feet. Give him to be head over all things in the church. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he said at the Father's right hand, put this, picture this in your head. The Father sitting on the throne, Jesus at his right hand above Every authority that includes Satan, that includes all of the demonic powers, that includes it all. The next chapter, it tells us this about you. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive in Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Quick questions. Where is Jesus now? The right hand of the Father, above everything. Everything. All things are all things. All means all. Did you get that? Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, above all things. According to Hebrews, it tells us he's interceding for us there. According to Ephesians 2, where are you seated? In Christ. Where are you seated when you're in Christ? At the right hand of the Father, above all things. Did you get that? If I'm seated, and notice it says he made us sit. Why is that important? Because he made us because we didn't want to sit there. How sad is that? The whole spiritual battle is trying to get off the lap of Christ when you belong there. Do it yourself. Come on. Take it in your own hands. Truth be told, I am seated in Christ at the right hand of the Father in the spiritual places in the heavenlies above all of this stuff. Why would I fear it? So Jesus says this then in our last couple verses. Verse 30. Look at this seriously with me, please, soberly. He was not with me 
is against me. You're either going to be with him or not with him, but rather, not just not with him, you're either going to be for Team Jesus or in Team Jesus, or you're going to be the opponent, part of the opponent's team. There's no other choices here. There's no free agents. But here's the one that gets me beyond that. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Do you realize what's being said? Either I am drawing, listen, listen, please. Either I am drawing them in or I am pushing them away. That's what I'm saying. That's what he's saying here. Look at either you're, you're gathering or you're scattering. Gathering means I'm drawing them into Jesus. Scattering means I'm pushing them away. He says, you're either doing one or the other. Beloved, please hear me. This is so serious. This is all these are our choices. <coughs> either I'm pulling them in or I'm pushing them away. There's no other option here. What am I doing? Am I drawing them in or am I pushing them away? Therefore, every sin and blasphemy, which is forgiven men, except for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Wow, what? It will be forgiven men anything, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven him. No forgiveness for this? Either in this age or the age to come. Hey, whatever this is, we better take it seriously because I don't want to be here. How about you? And it's that serious. No forgiveness for this? So what are the things? Well, there's two things that we see in regards to this because Jesus says it in both Mark and Luke as well. It tells us in Mark 2.28, the same text. Then he says by 29, But he who blasphemed against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is subject to eternal condemnation because they said he has an unclean spirit. And Luke, Jesus says right before this, he who denies me before man, I will deny before the angels of God. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven him, but whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And I put this together, and here's the simplest of it. And the Luke text is quite simple. If you never accept Jesus... You never have forgiveness. That makes sense. And he says, you want to deny me before men? You want to deny me? Well, then there's no forgiveness because all forgiveness comes at the accepting of Jesus Christ. I get that. So what about our text here then and in Mark? Well, get the idea. What they were doing is, and Mark makes it clear, is they were attributing all of Jesus' miracles to Satan. Have you noticed that? And if I really believed that all of the miracles Jesus did were of Satan, how could I ever accept him as my Savior? How could he ever be my Savior? How could he be God in the flesh if all the miracles he did were because of Satan? So understand what Jesus is saying. Listen, I can't make this more simple and important to us. We cannot say no to Jesus. It's that simple. It's like, look at you and say, well, all of his power was demonstrated by Satan. Well, then you're not going to accept him. If we're going to deny him, well, then I'm not going to accept him. He doesn't say, well, unless you put your faith in someone else, that's nice later. Unless you put your time into something, you know, well, they're going to be nice or whatever. Don't worry about it. It'll be cool. He doesn't say any of that, beloved. What he says is, it's Jesus or there's no forgiveness. That's it. Jesus is power and his personality. Jesus as Savior and as Lord, and that's your option. There's no forgiveness also. And here's the thing. If you read these other books, you're not going to find forgiveness in the Quran. 
Who pays for your sins in the Quran? Who pays for your sins in the Bhagavad Gita? Who pays for your sins when we talk about, when you start reading the wisdoms of, of Siddhartha Buddha? Who pays for your sins there? Jesus is the only Savior, the only ransom us that can ransom us out of the hands of the enemy. No one else bound the strong man. Only Jesus did that. So here's the question as we go to prayer, beloved. Are we in Jesus' camp or not? Here's the problem. We can't just say, I'm in Jesus' camp, but I'm going to have nothing to do with his kingdom. I'm going to have nothing to do with his mission. Because his mission is to seek and serve and save the least, last, and the lost. His mission is simple. His methodology, his mindset is, I love you, I want you to be saved. That's his mindset. And his methodology is the cross. Total sacrifice. Total truth. Total surrender to redeem us. It is really simple. And either we're going to gather or we're going to scatter. That's the simple of it. So I ask again, where are you? Because as we go to prayer now, the real question now is, will we say yes to this Jesus? And if we have said yes to this Jesus, my question is, are we willing then to be used by him? And if I can't just, well, if I can't just be on the front line, then God, show me how I can bolster those who are. If I can't just be out there, you know, you know, it, right at the, the heat of the battle, well, then show me how to be part of this thing in such a way so that those that are there are actually better supported better taken care of because one way or another we want to see the kingdom of God and we want to see the city saved and the city cannot be saved by anyone but Jesus Christ so as we go to prayer may God work in our hearts have you said yes to the gift of Jesus his death at the cross his resurrection where he's seated at the right hand and God says I invite you to come and sit in my son above all of these things I fear no demonic power. And I say that right here in Camden, of all places. You know, there are places even in this city where we'd say, oh, do you believe in demon possession? All that would be like, that's crazy. People don't say that in Camden. One last thing is before we pray. Nowhere in Scripture does it ever say that a Christian can be possessed. That is imperative to recognize. People say, well, what about Judas? He was possessed, to which I'd say, you're right, he was. But John makes clear he was a thief from the beginning. He was never, he may have been in the class, but he was not surrendered. He was not enrolled by soul. The Bible does, does make clear, without Jesus Christ, he's still stronger. The enemy is stronger than humankind, but greater is he who is with me. And I am seated in him. I haven't a worry. But if you've not said yes to Jesus, there is a whole part of you, no matter how much you take care of, for the, for the nearly million people that are running the marathon right now, praise, you know, praise God that, that they seem to be running well and they're physically taking care of themselves. Good. Spiritually, or should say, um, emotionally, we can work from a state of, of, of security and we see some sort of security and we can rest in that. And that can make us, we can find things to feed us emotionally. People that we, that we know love us and care for us. 
But you'll never be complete until you are spiritually taken care of. And that can only happen through Jesus Christ. Pray with me, would you please? God, I thank you so much for this time. I thank you for your word here. I thank you, Lord, that if there were somebody that other people might think is possessed, we should be the first to the call. Not looking for someone levitating or talking about dreams about being chased by tall, bald men. But truth be told, if somebody doesn't say yes to you, they're still under his influence, whether they're possessed or not, and they need to be delivered. Thank you, Jesus. You're in the business of delivering. Forgive us for what we look more like the enemy than you, making it all about us instead of you. Because when we make it all about us, how could we possibly not scatter? And that looks very divisive. The Lord put that heart within us to be united and galvanized under your kingdom to do your will, your way, where it is about you, not us. Where your cross is the method. And salvation is the mission. Intimacy with you. So Jesus, we confess you as Lord and Savior today. We recognize your forgiveness, your blood covers all the sins. Because we recognize that only through you is forgiveness and no other way is. So in that, Lord, even today, bolster us in this. And may we not walk in the fear of the spiritual world around us, but rather, Lord, we pray you would take every thought captive in obedience to you. We would not entertain what is we shouldn't be entertaining. and We should not add our own appetites into it to start introducing menus you've not written. But may we walk in your truth today, walk in your victory today. Do not fear of that spiritual world, but rather instead embracing you, seated in you, Jesus, at the right hand of the Father above all these things. And we just say, Lord, keep us there, hold us there. And in doing so, show us your victory. And in showing us your victory, Lord, give us your heart to not to not scatter, but to draw in and to draw in through the cross. As you say, when you are lifted up, you'll draw all men unto you, Lord. May we lift you up. And in doing so, Lord, please. Be glorified and save those around us and use us to be a part of it, we pray. Jesus, in your name. Amen.